For years, Stuart Stevens was the go-to strategist for a generation of Republican candidates running for higher office. He was a top advisor to George W. Bush in both his campaigns for president in 2000 and 2004, and then he did the same for Mitt Romney in 2012. But now Stevens has abandoned his party and is doing everything he can to elect Joe Biden president. He's also written a new book about his disillusionment with the Republican Party called It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. As the Republican Convention prepares for its second night of speeches, Stevens is our guest on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. We are joined now by Stu Stevens, veteran Republican strategist, now a supporter of Joe Biden for president and the author of It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stu, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, buddy. Great, great to be here. The subtitle of your book seems to have been reaffirmed in spades this weekend with the announcement that the Republican Party wasn't going to have a platform this year other than to issue a statement saying that the party enthusiastically supports President Trump. That seems like it was written to promote the title of your book, at least the subtitle, if not the uh, title itself. What do you think? Well, look, you know, I finished this book about a year ago, and it's a pretty bleak view of the Republican Party. And I've now decided I was way too optimistic. <laughs> What's happened? I mean, a year ago, if I, you know, woken you up in the middle of the night and said, look, uh, Mike, the day the Republican convention opens, Republicans are going to say there's not a platform. It's just whatever Donald Trump wants it to be. It's going to be the worst economy in the history of the country, worst in the Great Depression. More Americans have died in the last five months than ever before in U.S. history. And by the way, you can't leave the country. How's it going? You would have said, no, that's too much, dude. You can't do that. All those things aren't going to happen. And they have. It's, it's extraordinary. So, Stu, seems to me what's unique, you're not the only never-Trumper out there who's written a book. In fact, we had Rick Tyler on yesterday who's got a new book out called Still Right. But you seem to be the only Republican out there who makes the argument that Donald Trump has not sort of hijacked the Republican Party, that there's a straight line between the modern Republican Party and going back to maybe 1964 to Donald Trump. So what is your thesis? Well, I'm right and they're wrong. Look, you know, in 16, a lot of people are wrong about Trump, but it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. You know, I, I didn't think he'd win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the general. And in retrospect, a lot of that is I didn't want to believe it. And then I went through a period of saying, well, you know, this isn't really the Republican Party. 
But I don't really know how you can sustain that. I mean, it is a true statement. The Republican Party is the party that endorsed Roy Moore and attacked John Bolton. So I began this by just asking myself, like, how did this happen? Because it has happened. We can't ignore that. So I went back and really looked at the post-World War II history of the party. And I think a, a pattern becomes pretty obvious, that there was always these two elements within the party. So in the 50s, it was an Eisenhower element and a Joe McCarthy element. And the Joe McCarthy element was imbued with a lot of racism. So you know now we mourn, for some cause, the loss of an intellectual voice like William Buckley. Instead, we have Sean Hannity. But we forget William Buckley began as a Stone Cold racist. And the second book he wrote after God and Man at Yale was a defense of Joseph McCarthy. So these elements have always been there. You know, one of the things I do in the book is go back to the memo that Kevin Phillips and Pat Buchanan wrote for Nixon, which became the blueprint for the Southern strategy. So if you go back to like 99, when Bush announced, and I went down and to work for the Bush campaign in 99, uh, April of 1999. You can make a good case, I think, that conservatism was a victim of its own success at that point. So the Cold War was over. I guess you'd say we won. Welfare had been a big conservative issue, and Bill Clinton had famously run on ending welfare as we know it. Crime had been a big conservative issue, and crime was declining at a rapid rate as it's continued to. Taxes weren't 70% anymore. So you had this kind of crime, welfare, taxes, communism set of issues that really had at least decreased in their urgency. So what would a new conservatism be? And I think this is what Governor Bush asked himself. And out of that evolved an ethos, compassionate conservatism. The core of that for Bush was education. It's what he really cared about. It's what really motivated him. He was incredibly passionate about it, knew a lot about it. So what did he pass? You know, first piece of leg major legislation was no child left behind. But all that died on 9-11 when Bush became a wartime president. So I think a lot of us in the party, certainly, I mean, I thought, and I think when you look around today, it occurred to me one day, there's a group of, of us out there against Trump that we literally used to all be in the same room in Bush world. <laughs> me, Nicole Wallace, Mark McKinnon, uh, Matthew Dowd, Michael Gerson, who writes for the Post, Pete Wayne, or he wasn't in the room, but he was part of that. And it's not like we talked about this. It's just that we see Trump as so antithetical to what we aspired to be. So I thought that there was inevitability to the vision of the party that we saw. And if for no other reason than political necessity, it would have to become more inclusive. The party would have to adjust. Look at it, DNA. I, I thought that our side was the dominant gene and that that other side was the recessive gene. I think I have to conclude I was wrong. And we were the recessive gene. And, you know, if you go back and you read George Bush's acceptance speech, given almost 20 years ago to the day, I'm telling you, man, that thing, read it. It reads like a document from a lost civilization. It's, it's like you've stumbled across something the Mayans wrote. I mean, it's all about compassion, humility, service, Right. But Stu, I mean, you argue that there was this, you know, irredeemable strain of racism in the Republican Party all along. All the while, you were working to elect 
Republicans to the White House and Congress. You know, certainly in 1988, uh, George H.W. Bush won with using the Willie Horton strategy, playing the race card. The Southern strategy dates back to 1968, well before you were actually working to help Republicans. Even as late as 2012, you were a top strategist for Mitt Romney. It was Romney who talked about self-deportation of DACA and other illegal immigrants in the United States. So this was all there during the time you were working to elect Republicans uh, as you look back on your own role. You know, know, when I wrote this book, you know, there's a there's a trope of political books, Washington books that say, like, if only they had listened to me. I didn't want to write that book because they did listen to me. So, I mean, in the first page of the book, I say, blame me. And I think what you're saying is a completely fair charge. At the same time, there were these two elements in the party. And I worked for the people who were trying to articulate and execute a different vision of the party very differently than Donald Trump. So look, in my mind, it's all about race. So 56, Eisenhower gets 40% of the black vote almost. It drops to 7% with Goldwater in 64. Now, you could have made a case at the time that would have been reasonable that African-Americans would come back to the party after the Civil Rights Act was passed. Cultural conservatism, faith, entrepreneurship, patriotism, that never happened. So since 1964, Republicans have failed to attract 90% of the African-American vote. Now, we used to look at that as a huge failure and talk about a big tent. And in 2005, Mark Melman, chairman of the party, went in front of the NAACP and apologized for the Southern strategy. Now, we failed. We weren't good at it. We didn't, we didn't succeed in drawing African-Americans back to the party. But I think the fact that we acknowledged our failure was important. So you could, sort of two truths can exist in simultaneously that seem somewhat contradictory. Yes, the Bush campaign didn't run the Willie Horton spot, but Willie Horton spot was made by a political action committee. At the same time, once he was president, President Bush, 41, actively opposed David Duke when he was a Republican nominee in Florida. They organized a campaign to run against David Duke to make sure David Duke didn't win. George Bush resigned from the NRA in a blistering letter. And I talk about it in this book. And to go to Romney and the self-deportation, you know, if you read that debate, the transcript of that debate, Romney's actually arguing from the left, as it were, because he's arguing against forced deportation. His position was basically the Obama position, which is we want to make it less desirable for people to be in the country illegally, more desirable for them to stay in their own country. And we're not going to deport these people. We're not going to put them on buses. They should have a reason to go back to their home where it's more economically rewarding. And he came up with this sort of weird, awkward phrase, self-deportation. But when you look at it, he was against that idea that we're going to round up these people. So there were these two elements. And now I ask myself why I didn't see the other more. And I use Ronald Reagan in Neshoba County as an example. So, you know, Ronald Reagan, when he announced in 80, went down to Mississippi and spoke in the Neshoba County Fair. Now, this has a lot of resonance for me. I'm a seventh generation Mississippian. I've been in the Neshoba County Fair, you know, since I was five years old. And just to remind our listeners, that's yeah. where the three civil rights workers were murdered, right? And that's the yeah. Mississippi burning case. Yeah. Yeah. Though everybody in the Neshoba County to this day, we'll point out that the 
murderers came from another county and they just buried it in the Shober, which is actually not totally without interest anyway, because they came from a county, Kemper County in Mississippi, which is adjacent, which had this nickname of Bloody Kemper because it seceded not only from the Union, but the Confederacy, which meant that basically like everybody was killed. It didn't improve the gene pool. But, you know, I defended Reagan speaking in Neshoba County for a long time. Mississippi was a swing state then, we forget, Clinton had carried it. It was important for him to speak. Politicians speak at Neshoba County Fair all the time. But when I wrote this book, I went back and I reread the speech. And I think that there's something wrong, sure what the right word even is, to go to that place where you can almost walk to the dam where they buried Toronto Cheney and Goodman, talk about states' rights, and not address that issue. Stu, you watched the Republican convention last night, and you no doubt saw the speech by Tim Scott, who gave a rather moving account of his own personal story, his own personal journey from being uh, you know, poor in South Carolina and growing up to be the first African-American senator from the state. He is clearly pitching the big big tent philosophy that you always wanted the Republican Party to adopt. As you listen and process his speech, does it address some of the concerns you have? Does it suggest that maybe there's more to Donald Trump's party than just the narrow racist themes that you're highlighting here? Well, numbers would tell you that about 97% of American, African-Americans disagree with Tim Scott. So he's speaking, I think, eloquently to about 4% of that group. I, I just don't think that you can parse what he said, which is aspirational. I mean, I found it moving too. But think what's happened just in the past couple of months. My home state of Mississippi finally takes down the state flag, which is basically the Confederate battle flag. So here in the most Southern states, the last Confederate flag comes down. That same week, Donald Trump, head of the Republican Party, president of the United States, is defending the Confederate flag and attacking NASCAR for taking down the Confederate flag and banning the Confederate flag. So, and he's defending Confederate monuments. So you can't say that that's not the party. He's head of the party. At that same night, last night, there were two people from St. Louis who were at the convention because they had waved guns at black people. That is their sole reason to be at that convention. So, And you also had Nikki Haley, who did take down the Confederate flag from the South Carolina Capitol. Let's talk about Nikki Haley. So Nikki Haley, who had the courage to take down the flag, but not the courage to say that it was the flag last night. Yeah. To it as a symbol. Duly noted. Yes. Nikki Haley, who last week the Rubio report came out, Republican committee concluding that Russians, foreign hostile power, influenced the election on behalf of Donald Trump. And she did nothing as our UN ambassador and didn't even mention it last night. The single most serious attack on American electoral system by hostile foreign power, and she doesn't even mention it. 
Yeah. Uh, by the way, Ruby. Yeah, it was Rubio's report. He's the acting chair of the committee. And his takeaway from the report is we prove there's no collusion. As we had Angus King on the pod last week, who said, I don't know if he was reading the same report that uh, I was because the details were very I, I did different. A lot of stuff, I did a lot of stuff in politics, you know, but I never wor- woke up and worked on the same side as the Russians. I mean, I, I think it's uh, look, my, my, my feeling is that there's just been a complete collapse of the Republican Party. And when you're in the middle of these things, it's hard to sort of realize their impact and see them. But I don't think we've seen anything like this. So, I mean, I, I say, if you ask somebody, what does the Republican Party stand for now? What is conservatism? I, I, I don't know anyone who can articulate anything with credibility. I mean, we used to say it was character counts, personal responsibility, free trade, fiscal sanity, the national debt mattered, strong on Russia, uh, pro-legal immigration. Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty, signed a bill that made everyone in the country before 1983 legal. His last speech was this beautiful ode to immigrants. We're not only like sort of forgotten those things, we're against all those things. And I mean, we've never, we've never seen it. Now take Elizabeth Warren. She can articulate a theory of government very eloquently and she can, and, and with great intelligence. And she, you may hate it, you may love it, but you can argue with her. And you can have an actual conversation. You can't do that with anybody on the right now. It's just been a complete collapse. And the only thing I can compare it to is the collapse of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union where what it said it was for and what it was for became so disparate that it just collapsed. Stu, it's not a new thing for Republicans and even Republican leaders to recognize and acknowledge uh, that the party has a problem with African-American voters, other minority voters, that immigration reform was needed. You mentioned George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush with uh, compassionate conservatism. And after Romney lost the election in 2012, as you write about, uh, Reince Priebus, the head of the RNC, does this autopsy uh, report. That's another inflection point. And yet, over and over again, nothing really has changed fundamentally. So why? Why? Because yeah. I want it to change. That's, that's it. This is why I call the book It Was All a Lie. So if you go to that autopsy, right, it was presented not only as a political necessity, which was kind of obvious. It was sort of like we lost the Super Bowl. What should you do? Score more points. Okay, great. We got it. it was presented as a moral mandate that if you're going to earn the right to govern this big, confusing, loud, contradictory country, you need to represent it more. So then Trump comes along. And there's almost like an audible sigh of relief. We can just throw that out the window. It's like, thank God we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff anymore. We can just win with white people. So, yes, you know, my premise is people don't abandon deeply held beliefs in a few years. You don't. It just means you didn't deeply held them. That's all it means. They were marketing slogans. They weren't beliefs. And that's what I say, you know, I feel like the guy working for Bernie Madoff who actually thought we were beating the market. It's like, I believe this stuff. I was like, really? We're not? That's not true? We don't care about this? So, you know, in Ronald Reagan, we said that words from a president can change the world, bring, help bring down the Berlin Wall. Now with Trump, we go, it's just words. Stu, you're an advisor to the Lincoln Project, which has been running these uh, ads attacking Donald Trump very effectively. And I think you've said you're going to work for Joe Biden and his election. What are you what are you doing? What do you plan to do? And how do you see the never Trumper efforts playing out? You know, I mean, everybody who 
Bob's a Republican, is a Republican against Trump. You know, everybody's going to have to make their own decision. And I, I don't think anything is going to happen in unanimity. We have a united goal now, which is to beat Trump. And we, we had sort of a choice here. Uh, those of us who are against Trump, who've worked in the Republican Party, we could either be for Trump, but we're not going to do that. We could either sit the election out, which kind of sucks. I don't know. Or we could try to use skills that we have to beat Trump. So we said, okay, door number three. Now, we don't confuse it with any personal nobility or anything. I mean, Trump world comes and attacks us. It's like, are you kidding? Like, we wouldn't vote for ourselves. We're like political consultants. So my choice here is I'm going to work with Democrats. To me, there, there really are three parties in America. There's a Republican Party, which is increasingly irrelevant because it just says no. And then there's two parties within the Democratic Party, say the AOC, Sanders wing, and the, uh, the Biden wing call. So the future of America is going to be decided in that discussion and in that debate. The Republicans really aren't going to have anything to do with it. So take national health care. Are we really in 20 years going to be the only Western country that doesn't have national health insurance? No, it's not going to happen. It's impossible. What that's going to be is going to be decided in the Democratic Party. Republicans, they've had a chance to come up with an alternative to do it. They're not. They don't want to. So what's going to happen to the Republican Party is what happened in California. It's just obvious. I mean, California was the beating heart of the Republican Party, the electoral citadel. Now it's in third place, not second, third. And really, it's pretty irrelevant for every big decision that California is making. When's the last time a prominent Republican office holder in California steered the, the state in a different direction? So have you dropped your uh, Republican Party registration? Or are you now a Democrat? I actually haven't registered for this year, but I will register as a Democrat. Yeah. You know, in Mississippi, we never, you, you don't register by party. Party's a state of mind, as we always said. Um, Stu, let me, let me ask you about the Lincoln Project ads, because they are, you're running some of the toughest ads out there, you know, suggesting that Donald Trump is unstable. And you have a new one out. It's just called Evil, where you, you say that Trump's handling of the coronavirus crisis that some people call it incompetence, but let's call it what it really is, evil. And I guess the question is, who are you aiming these ads at? Because it sort of sounds like they're aimed at the base of the Democratic Party to energize them, to get them out. But don't you need, I mean, and particularly since most of you are either Republicans or former Republicans, shouldn't you be aiming those ads at independents and perhaps Republicans who you could peel off to vote for Donald Trump? We have different targets for different ads. And one of the things I've found in the Lincoln Project is it's very liberating not to have a client because we can wake up and we can do whatever we want. And if we go too far, we don't have to worry it's gonna blow back on the candidate, which is a legitimate concern whenever you're in politics, you know, uh, because the candidate ultimately has to answer for everything you do. Nobody has to answer for what we do. The Biden campaign thinks we go too far, then go with a bunch of lunatics, you know, what do we have to do? So we, I think, are very good at getting inside Donald Trump's head and very good at sort of disrupting their process. So every day they're focused on the Lincoln Project, attacking us and not attacking Joe Biden and articulating an argument against Joe Biden. That's a good day. The one thing that every campaign has the exact same amount of is time. So if we can buy them 12 hours, we've done a good day. That's a good day. I think that we're very good at rallying the, articulating the urgent need to defeat Donald Trump. Why is it Democrat or Republican? It's about America versus Trump, as we say. I mean, we really see ourselves as a pro-democracy group. 
Stu, how does this work? I mean, you get on the phone with Rick Wilson and John Weaver every morning, and like, tell us how the um, the brainstorms for the Lincoln Project come about. That's why I was late to this call. Our morning call went went late. We just get on the call in the morning, uh, a few of us, and we decide what to do. Review what we did. We have metrics. We're expanding. We now have a streaming television program that we launched. during the Republican uh, Democrat convention, soft launch. Now it's up and running. We're getting over 200,000 people a night. It's another vehicle that we're gonna use. We're gonna try to give a lot of voter registration and uh, how to vote information in that channel. And then we decide what to do. And then we just do it. It's very liberating. I just wanted to ask how big of a uh, loss is it to have George Conway bow out? Oh, listen, you know, George wasn't, involved in sort of the stuff I'm involved in, which is advertising. You know, to his credit, he goes, look, I'd be glad to look at this stuff, talk about it, but I really don't know anything about it. He, I think, was a tremendous, is a tremendous voice. He's a tremendous writer. He is out there articulating the case against Trump. But it was distinct from sort of, call it the electronic end, that, that you know, in our kind of donut factory, he wasn't in there making donuts. He was doing something really sort of a higher level. I, I think George is a real uh, American hero here, a civilian who stepped forward in a time of need to make a case of great sacrifice. There's nothing in this for George Conway. Hey, Stuart, do you offer any kind of prescriptive element for the Republican Party? I mean, you were basically referred to them as an irrelevancy, but you also spotlight in the book governors like uh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts or Larry Hogan in Maryland, who are kind of more technocratic, less ideological, uh, more competent. Bill Scott in Vermont. Do they offer a uh, hope for your, I guess we could say your former party? Um, No, They're, they're actually, I think, some of the most depressing evidence, because here you have these guys who are wildly successful in the toughest markets. So if Republicans really believe this, we want to run things like a business stuff, they look at these guys and go, they're selling our product in the hardest market. They're selling the hell out of it. What can we learn? Teach us, teach us, teach us. So they just kind of ignore them. And all those guys have worked for. They've all been clients of mine. They're fantastic governors. But here's something that people never really focus on. As popular as they are, they can't pick their own state party chairman. They're Trump people. Now, in politics, that's just unheard of. A popular governor can't pick your own party chairman. And it just shows how deeply Trumpism has been embedded in the party and how out of step these guys are with the mainstream of the party. Stu, last question. Um, You're working to elect Joe Biden. Uh, You're going to register as a Democrat. Assuming Trump loses, Biden is elected post this election. Are you going to go back to the Republican Party and try to rebuild it in more in keeping with your own views? Or are you have you abandoned the party entirely? I work with Democrats. I'm not. Listen, I love people like, you know, I had some back and forth yesterday with Michael Steele, former chairman. He goes, look, I'm not going to let Donald Trump run me out of this party. I've been a member of this party for years. I respect that. I'm just in a different place. So I, you're, I, you're all in with the Democrats now. You have no interest in going back. I and, think, like, um, like I was saying, I think the big questions in them that affect us as a country are going to be decided in the Democratic Party. What if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee? I would have voted for Bernie Sanders. 
um, because I think the necessity of defeating Donald Trump is so urgent. I mean, Bernie Sanders is certainly to the right of Donald Trump on foreign policy in a lot of ways, and probably to the right of you know, on trade, weirdly. You know, I've known Bernie forever since I was at Middlebury College, and I saw him standing on the street yelling about rent control when he was running for mayor. It's like, who is this guy? I would have voted for him. I could actually make a case that the best thing that could have happened for conservatives is for Sanders to win, because you then could have had something to articulate a case against that would have been more dramatic. I think Sanders uh, would have been a much easier candidate for Trump to beat. And, and I think the Biden campaign, you know, there's all this stuff that I hear out there, oh, you guys know Lincoln Project, you're making these spots, how come Democrat can't make these spots? I think the Biden campaign is, I think they're making some great ads, and I think they've run a historically good campaign. You know, it is incredibly difficult in a campaign to start as a front runner, lose badly, and not do something desperate to remake your candidate or candidacy, which seldom works. But it's like being down 40 to nothing at the end of the third quarter in the Super Bowl. You're going to go, we're going to stick with our plan? Probably not. You're going to do something crazy. It's not going to work. You're going to lose. They didn't. And that's to their great credit, I think. Your uh, forecast for November 3rd? It's very hard to beat an incumbent president. So uh, I'll leave you with just one. You know, from 76 to 2008, we had campaign finance reform, where both candidates got the same amount of money. That cleaned up politics to a certain degree, but it also leveled the playing field. So Carter lost and Bush lost under that. Now both candidates, the incumbent and the challenger, are not in the federal funding system. So it's a fair question to ask, when was the last time incumbent president lost who wasn't in the federal funding system? And the answer is Herbert Hoover. And he had a bad year. So the power of the incumbent president, particularly a ruthless president like Donald Trump, who, I mean, if you said to Donald Trump, you're going to get elected president, but it may be the last American election. His, does anybody think his response wouldn't be, what's the catch? What, what are you saying? So he's very, very dangerous. But Donald Trump won with 46.1%. Romney lost with 47.2%. So for all this cottage industry of why Donald Trump wanted Trump, he won for one simple reason in one respect. He ran in which, a year in which Republicans could win with 46.1%. It's all about the non-white vote. Non-white vote declined for the first time in 20 years in 16. If non-white vote comes back to the levels that it had been, Trump can't win. And they know that, which is why they're going to engage in every bit of voter suppression, legal, illegal, in between, that they can. The book is It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stu Stevens, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it.